0: The Think Neuro podcast from Pacific Neuroscience Institute takes you into the clinic, operating room, and laboratory with doctors and surgeons who are tackling the most challenging brain diseases and disorders. Hi, my name is Anthony Effinger and I'm your host. If you've never had a migraine headache, you're lucky. Sufferers say the pain alone is wretched and there are a host of other awful symptoms. A migraine can garble a person's speech, Paralyze parts of the body, cause the sensation of a room spinning and make any emotion feel like moving through molasses. Dr. Dorothy Dada, a neurologist at Providence St. John's Medical Center, a hospital partner of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, specializes in migraines and in helping people get relief from them. Migraines are among the top five causes of disability in women who are more prone to migraines than men. Their cause remains a mystery. Evidence points to heredity, but not every migraine sufferer appears to have a genetic history. Fortunately, there are treatments beyond painkillers killers like ibuprofen. Antidepressants that bolster the neurotransmitter serotonin help in many cases. Listen to this episode of Think Neuro to learn how experts like Dr. Dorothy Dada are tackling this debilitating and all too common ailment. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Anthony.
0: So I want to start by asking you first, how did you end up in the field of neurology?
1: Oh, boy. Um, It's a little bit of a long story. I'll try to truncate it a little bit for you. Um, I think, you know, I I always grew up uh, wanting to be a doctor. I went to uh, college, you know, with that in mind. I was pre-med. I was really focused and really just um, driven to, you know, do everything I need to do to get into medical school and and be great. Right. And so um, in my first year of college, um, I started doing research as a way to prepare myself for medicine, really kind of build that inquisitive side of, of my mind. And um, I got into a research program and this research program was like a, a, a we, it was a summer program that was being held at MIT. And so I spent my summers at MIT doing research and I started learning, you know, as a part of that program, you are attending lectures in all different aspects of medicine and medical science and research. And I attended some lectures in neuroscience that really just got me excited. Um and I don't remember the specific lecture that you know did it but what I do remember is you know after that first year I went back to school and um I started looking for courses in neuroscience and neurology right and that first I'm sorry where were where were you in school at the time I was at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore okay. yeah. yeah and so I went back to school and I found this course Um, in neuroscience. And I, I, you know, enrolled and I was in the class. And back then, that was probably um, 1998, about 1998. And at that time, they were teaching that the brain and the spinal cord didn't have the capacity to regenerate. That if you had a brain injury, if you had a spinal cord injury, that was it. There's no there's nothing else, right? And it really hit me, you know, I was about 18 years old at that time. And I thought about, you know, other kids my age, you know, people who, you know, like to ride motorcycles and that sort of thing. And what happens if somebody gets into a car accident, you know, you can break your arm. You know what the arm does, right? You put on a cast and you have some healing of the bone and you're okay, right? Right. But if you get into this car accident and you have a spinal cord injury, like your life as a 19-year-old is over as you know it, right? You're not able to walk. You're not able to. And there's nothing that doctors can do about it. There's nothing. And that was something that I was just like, why would you want to be a doctor and not be able to do something about this? You know, this can't be the end of the story. We have to figure out. why? There's a reason why this was, you know, this is such a protected part of the body, but there's also got to be a way to give somebody hope, you know, not just know the medications well and be able to treat symptoms, but really get at the root cause of the disease. And it was at that, that was the moment that I remember. And that was the moment where I said, oh my gosh, like, why, why are you going down this path of being a doctor, you need to become a scientist. That option, right? There's an option of being a medical scientist, right? And these are people who decide to go to medical school and do their graduate research training at the same time. And when they graduate, they graduate with a dual degree, the MD and the PhD. And I thought, why would I even want to practice medicine? Like, this has got to be so much more fun to be a researcher and to really discover and find the keys. Right. And so I said, I'm not going to do an MD PhD. I'm just going to go and do my PhD and be this awesome scientist and figure this stuff out. Right. And so that's what I did. I just, I went straight for the PhD and I did research all throughout my undergrad. I helped one of my undergrad professors build a research lab in biology and um, I applied to, I just went crazy with it. <laughs> I started going to um, I started competing at um, these uh, research um, their research conferences for undergraduate students. And um, they had this program where you know there would be, you know, a good number of us that have been doing research during the year and during the summer, and we present our research and we, you know, get awarded for, you know, the most innovative research or, you know, the best presentation and that sort of thing. And I did that throughout the year and it was so much fun. And I started looking for those conferences that were neuroscience related. And that's how I found my mentor. I looked her up. I knew that she was going to be at this conference. And I just, I walked up to her at the conference. It was the Society for Neuroscience Conference in New Orleans. I remember that. And I walked up to her and I introduced myself. And I think I probably emailed her before then. It was just like a blind email and told her I would be there. And she was so happy to see me and like, you know, and I ended up working with her. I ended up, you know, going to UCLA straight out from, you know, undergrad. I- um, Who was that? Who was, the, who was the, your mentor? It was uh, Marie-Francoise Cheselet. It was, she's a French woman who studied in France along with all the guys, you know, one of the few women who did her MD and PhD and um, really just came up through the ranks of neuroscience and neurobiology and was just, you know, she was the head of the neurobiology department at UCLA had a, you know, huge lab had trained numerous, you know, um, scientists that were, you know, out in the world Mm. you know I wanted to be just like her. I wanted to you know have that sort of legacy. Um, and so i I came out to uh, l a. And mind you, I'm from you know California. I had left to to go to Maryland to school. and I, Southern California or where? yeah, i, I grew up in Riverside actually. So
0: yeah. It was homecoming.
1: Yeah, basically, exactly. Um, And I I came out and I worked with her and I started a project looking at brain repair mechanisms Um, and really kind of dug down into um, the nitty gritty of, of neuroscience, which is kind of basic neuroscience, understanding the molecules and the proteins that are involved in how the neurons change when you have a brain injury and how the neurons change and the environment wherein, in which the neurons are in in the brain, how that environment changes when you have a brain injury and how the environment changes when the brain attempts to repair itself. And if you can understand those mechanisms, right, what, what happens when things go wrong and what happens when, when you're trying to correct the, the system, then... At that point, you can start developing therapeutics that address those issues, right? And so that's, that's where I was. And, and, and my big project was studying the role of a protein called NOGO. And it's kind of aptly named because it would stop the, the, the axons, which is hmm. part of the neuron. It's the, it's the part of the neuron that guides its way and finds another target. It's the way that the neurons transmit information to each other so no go if it's in the adult brain environment if that axon is trying to find a new target and it encounters no go it will stop interesting however in the young brain in a brand new baby brain that's really trying to develop new connections that no go is actually helps to guide the neuron to the right place so you know some of the things that we find in our brains and in our bodies it's never an all or nothing kind of thing. What you find is that there's a a unique balance between things that are, you know, beneficial for the brain and things that are harmful for the brain, or, you know, things that are permissive and things that are inhibitory. And you have a slight balance between those two in order to have, you know, good function.
0: Yeah. In this case, this is why does the no-go change its behavior in the adult brain? There must be a reason.
1: Well, you have to think about it, right? So in the growing brain, in the in the young growing brain, you want to establish connections in order to have function, right? So you need to establish the neurons in the brain need to be able to grow and connect so that you can see right Mm -hmm. So that you can move your hands or move your feet or so that you can learn how to speak right but what you don't want is once you learn those functions you don't want those functions to disconnect right so you need to establish that pathway and then maintain the pathway and that no-go helps to maintain those pathways so that if something happens in the brain, you know, the brain is a very plastic, is very plastic as in a in a neonate, in a, in a very young, you know, growing animal. And plastic meaning that it's movable, you can shape it, you can, you know, it, it can change. But as you get into adulthood, you want things to be, you don't want those things to change, right? You want to be able to learn how to speak and maintain those things and build on top of that.
0: Sure, right? yeah. You want to
1: be able to have that basic vision and then build on top of that and have better acuity and have better and so you're, you're kind of drilling down you're making those big pathways and then you're you're refining them and in order to refine them you have to make sure that there are boundaries to that
0: of you know? course of course right right so this maintains the structures uh, that are set up and that are useful
1: Exactly. And that's the kind of a basic, very generalized, you know, understanding of, of what sure. people did back then. Yeah.
0: So then coming back to brain injury, does something, um, how does no-go play with a uh, brain injury?
1: So what, what we found in, in, in my research was that um, in the injured brain, there is a modulation of no-go. So at that time, there were a lot of labs looking at NOGO. It was a very exciting, you know, protein to look at. Um, and there were labs that were trying to inhibit NOGO. So they develop antibodies that bind to this protein and prevent it from carrying out its action, so that you can, so those axons can sprout and go wherever they need to go. But what we found was that, um, and this is we meaning, you know, the the scientists and all the people that were studying no-go in the field, we found that blocking no-go, just blocking no-go is not all that great. You can form aberrant connections that are not beneficial for, you know, function of the brain and the spinal cord. And what we find is that it's a modulation of it. So no-go can be elevated. You have a certain level of no-go that's present in the brain and the spinal cord, um, you know, in an undisturbed brain and spinal cord. And then after that, what I found in my studies is that after a brain injury, that no-go level can increase. And so it's not a complete eradication of no-go that you need in order to allow for sprouting to occur, right. Was is that kind of, um, the axons kind of finding their way is actually a modulation of that level. You just kind of want to bring that level back down to the baseline level. And that's only one of thousands of different players, you know, that are occurring in, 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 um, in brain injury. And it's, it's one of the fascinating things about the brain is that there's no, there's no one molecule Mm-mm. you know brain cell one type of, of 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 um player it's a complex interplay of all of these different players and no is just the tiniest sure tiniest speck in that
0: but it's a fascinating one that that's um it's amazing that you've that we figured that out when I, I remember when i was growing up it was you know brain cells die and that's it and you're losing a bunch exactly. of them every day there's no exactly. plasticity it all felt very kind of, you know, doom oriented. Yes. But what, when did we begin to understand the plasticity of the brain? What, What? you know, is that- really I think we're still
1: it? trying to understand it. I think we're still trying to understand it. And, you know, just the same way with all of the other things, right? With traumatic brain injury, with migraine, we are kind of the knowledge- you know, as we develop technology, as we develop new ways of imaging the brain and seeing how the brain is working in real time, you know, neuroscience was born out of, you know, autopsy studies, right? And and mm-hmm. psychiatric studies and that sort of thing. So we, we had an understanding of the brain to a certain level, but then we were able to actually take, you know, um, slices of the brain and culture them just the same way that you have like bacteria, live bacteria in culture. You have these neurons that are in a matrix in a, in brain tissue and they're alive and you can actually see what they're doing and how they respond to different types of medications, different types of proteins, and really get a better understanding of how that works. Right. And that was kind of developed back then in in the nineties. And it's, it's, it was being done then. Um, And as we develop the technology to observe, we are, our knowledge and our understanding is growing by leaps and bounds, right? It's more exponential now than it was, than it's ever been.
0: Sure. And and it sounds like it's early innings here.
1: (laughs) Still, yeah, still very much, right? We're still trying to understand what we're made of.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how little we know.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the more, you know, the more you realize you don't really know much at all, but you know, I'm grateful for the advances that we have made because it makes us better clinicians, you know? And I think for me, um, that's that was the kicker. That was the kicker. I, I, I did the research and I loved it and you, you can see how exciting it is, you know, but one of the things that i missed was actually being in front of a patient and understanding how this disease is affecting you every day like that's a component that is absolutely necessary when you're doing the discovery because you out of your own curiosity you can have a idea of what you want to what you want to study and what you want to fix right but that thing might not be very important to the people suffering from that condition. The thing that's most important to that person is, you know, maybe the spinal cord injured person, right? You're saying up, you know, my big thing is I want to make people walk again. Right. But there are people with spinal cord injuries that say, Hey, you know, I just want to be able to urinate on my own and not have somebody help me. I want to be able to have sex with my wife, you know, that's more important than being able to walk and mountain climb and do all the things that I did before, you know, and having that connection with the patient, you know, really helps you to understand that.
0: So is that what brought you back from wanting to do peer research and got you to pursue your And Okay.
1: Absolutely. It was just the questions changed for me. The questions, you know, the the further you get into science and, you know, the, the true academia of it, for me, it pulled me further away from the patient. And my questions were always, there were questions that were left behind, like, uh, oh, well, what about the patients? What about what's what's going on there? Um, and I realized that I had to, I had to go back and learn the the, the, <laughs> the medicine. You know, there wasn't, there it wasn't all bad, right? And I, I needed to learn and I needed to understand it in order to be a better doctor, in order to be a better scientist. Um, and the questions that I had, they couldn't be answered in, in the lab.
0: Interesting, sure, I get that. Yeah. So yeah. now you're in practice, you see patients, um, and I know we've, we talked a little bit in preparing for this about um, the fact that you see a lot of people with migraine. Yes. Which is a fascinating area. And what, what are we learning? How are, how are we able to make life better for people with migraine?
1: Absolutely. It's, it's probably an often misunderstood disease. Um, Just because if you, if you don't have migraine, it kind of seems like it's just a headache. You know, what's so bad about just having a headache? Everybody gets headaches here and Why do you need to, get time off work for this headache. It's just a headache, right? But it's, it's more than a headache. And it really, you know, it's a leading cause of disability worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. It's in the top, top 20, at least of all disabling diseases worldwide. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's even more disabling for women. So it's, it's in the top five. I think it's, Probably like number four at this point, in terms of disabling diseases for women.
0: You know, I was thinking about this. You must hear from patients a lot of descriptions of migraine, yeah. and I imagine they're pretty um, incredible. What What do you hear? What do people describe?
1: There are different. There are different experiences with migraine. You know, you have kind of in in terms of kind of separating out migraine and thinking about it. You have people who have chronic migraine, episodic migraine, and then you have people who have migraine with aura, right? And that's migraine, sorry, what? Migraine with aura. Aura. Mm-hmm. Which are that that is or is is that plural? Yeah, it it is. Migraine with aura it is, I think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um so migraine with aura is, is basically you have migraine, but then you also have focal neurological symptoms that are that happen before or come with the actual head pain of a migraine. Okay, and so those can involve speech difficulty. So some people they'll be fine one moment, and then the next moment they cannot speak to you. They sound like garbled speech. They You know, they cannot articulate their words and it's not a stroke and it's not a seizure. It's a migraine. And then, you know, this aura can happen, you know, 20 minutes to half an hour before the head pain. People can also have um, dizziness where kind of the room is spinning, right? And that can happen before the migraine aura, before the, the pain of the migraine. Other people can have Numbness and tingling on one side of their face or their arm or their body, um, and then there's you know the other aspect of hemiplegic migraine where people are actually weak. They look like they've had a stroke.
0: Hemiplegic and, meaning half of your body your or body half?
1: is paralyzed. Yes, He's
0: paralyzed. Oh my gosh,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's momentary, but you know these these are disabling, and that's just one part of migraine, right? Even if you don't have migraine with aura, migraine can be de- debilitating because it can cause what people call cognitive fog, right? So brain fog. You feel like you're moving through molasses. You're not as sharp. You're not as quick. You can't really think, you know, the way that you would normally think. Things are slowed down. You know, you're just, it's it's like moving through molasses, right? Other people will have Um, extreme light sensitivity. So, you know, looking at a screen or even just walking outside, it's very painful and is very hurtful to them. One of the things that um, is really interesting is that, um, you know, cars now, the newer cars have these halogen lights that are really bright and migraine sufferers they know these cars (laughs) when they're out because you can be driving and you will just, one of those cars will drive by and it's like blinding to you.
0: And does it then trigger a migraine or is it, is that um, the full effect?
1: That's a, that's a good question. Um, There's a lot of controversy and not, not controversy among, you know, headache specialists, but kind of among patients and their doctors with understanding Kind of migraine triggers, what triggers your migraine and versus what is a part of your migraine. What um, we know about migraine is that your migraine starts up to 48 hours before you even start feeling pain. So a part of that, that, and that's what's called the prodrome of a migraine. In that prodrome, you have these things that we were talking about, that light sensitivity. People can have food cravings. They have mood changes. They can have temperature changes. So they feel a little bit more cold or a little more warm. They can also have increased yawning or uh, increased urination, just urinating a lot more frequently with a lot more volume. All of these things can happen before the migraine starts. right? And so because you're not, or actually they're a part of the migraine, Migraine starts. When I say that, I'm saying, you know, what people, what, what patients perceive as their migraine, which would be the head pain component of it. But this other part that is their migraine, that is the migraine starting. So all of these things happen before you get to the pain of the migraine. And so it causes some confusion as to what is triggering your migraine, as opposed to what was the start of your migraine that your might you are already in the migraine when you were feeling this so people will say oh man you know um light will trigger my migraine right but if you are in that premonitory phase where you're more sensitive to light where light is caustic to you yes you will feel that that the light is bothering you and then Mm hours later, you get the headache and you will associate that light is what caused me to have the headache, right? Other patients will say, oh, that food. If I go and I eat that burger with fries and pickles and this, that will cause me to have a migraine. And every time I eat it, I have a migraine, right? And The key is that, you know, they probably were already in the migraine phase and they had craving for that. And they answered that craving and they were going to get that migraine, that headache part of the migraine, whether or not they ate that food.
0: Sure. Oh my gosh.
1: So it was the, it was the craving. So um, there are things that we have and, you know, researching you know, really getting an understanding of what is a true trigger and what is a part of the migraine is a little bit difficult. Um, And so that's why a lot of these things haven't been completely vetted out. But from the things that have been vetted out in terms of scientific studies, we know a lot of patients will say that chocolate is a trigger for their migraine. We've done multiple studies of, you know, American chocolate, European chocolate, just the cocoa, you know, just, it does not trigger migraine. You cannot, you know, trigger a migraine with chocolate, but people think that chocolate is a, is a migraine trigger for them. But it and, could be
0: the, it could be that the craving for chocolate is caused by the migraine coming on.
1: Exactly. It's caused by the migraine itself. You're already in the migraine, which is why you have this craving for it. So
0: this is more, it's more correlation than causation.
1: Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: So closely related. Yeah. Very easy to think that one thing is causing the other.
0: Oh my, that must be maddening because you think you've got a cause, but you don't.
1: Yeah. And I I think it can be, you know, it can be maddening, but it can also be liberating, right? Because I think there's a lot of information out there about what things you should avoid what things you shouldn't do, what things you should eat, what things you shouldn't eat. And I think, you know, one of the things that I tell my patients all the time is that when you think about migraine, when we look at the things that help to reduce the severity and the frequency of migraine, they have a lot to do with balance, homeostasis, wholeness, right? Like, you know, getting good cardio exercise, maintaining your hydration, getting a good eight hours of sleep, not skipping meals. All those things are about you taking care of yourself and, and, and you know, really looking after your health. When you think about um, those restrictions, right? restricting your diet, restricting all of those other things, you can get into a place where you're completely out of balance because you're doing so many avoidance things avoidance activities diet avoidance and all of those things that take you out of balance and it can actually put you in a higher state of stress put you in a higher state of imbalance that can actually keep you in migraine a migraine cycle sure that's the liberating part of it is saying you know what Let's get away from being completely restrictive here and have some allowances. Let's, you know, be a little bit more aware of, okay, you know, as we are tracking and throughout the month, you can track and say, okay, I had a migraine this day and, you know, it was this severe and you can understand, okay, these are the things that happened around it. Maybe, you know, I did, now I remember I I really didn't have a really good night of sleep that night, or, you know, I had a lot of stress from work, which is a true trigger, and a lot of stress that you know i'm feeling the effects of that and that's that's what triggered the migraine as opposed to you know now i'm i need to eliminate all you know tomatoes carbs or tomatoes or yeah. you know, all of those things yeah. um you know it really helps helps people to find that balance when you can separate you know the the extremes
0: Um, Do do we know, do we know what's going on in the brain when somebody has a migraine, when you just take it down to anatomy and physiology? Have we scanned people's brains during a migraine to see what's happening? And is there anything that's consistent across all of, you know, these, the, the various cases?
1: Yeah. So we, we have, and we found some great consistencies and that kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier about, um, how our technology has really helped us to understand the brain and kind of observe it in real time. And what we find is that when we image the brain, we see that one of the first areas of the brain that has increased activity is the hypothalamus. And that's the part of the brain that's that's regulates, you know, energy homeostasis, right? It's the part of the brain that, really is responsible for some of those food cravings that you have just before you know the head pain starts. Um, it's responsible for the temperature regulation, right? So the hypothalamus will light up. We know that um, the thalamus, which is a part of the brain that is basically the sensory um, warehouse of the brain, all sensory inputs kind of go through the thalamus and they get filtered through the cortex. And that's how you understand, oh, I had pain, I hurt myself, I had pain, right? And that's how the the signals go back and forth.
0: And now a message from our sponsor. The Think Neuro Podcast is brought to you by Pacific Neuroscience Institute Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 organization. If you're inspired by what you hear and wish to support our mission of education through innovation, please visit pacificneuro.org slash foundation.
1: So, you know, the thalamus is responsible for one of the symptoms that we see in migraine sufferers, which is called cutaneous allodynia. And that's basically a sensitivity to the skin. You can touch your scalp and it feels sore or you can comb your hair or brush your hair. And that area of the the head feels really sore. And that's a part of the migraine and the thalamus is responsible for that. There's other parts of the brain, like the brainstem, which is kind of the deeper structures of the brain, the older parts of the brain um, that's responsible for the nausea that people have when they have migraine. There's other areas of the occipital cortex, which is the back of, of the brain, which is responsible for vision. That part of the brain is responsible for that light sensitivity that you have when you have migraine.
0: So what's happening in each, of, what's happening in these regions? Are they, are they becoming more active? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Seeing? Okay.
1: Yes. That's what we're seeing is increased activity.
0: So what might be, well, if you had to guess, I mean, I know that, that we don't know the cause of migraine, do we?
1: Well, we know, we know, you know, we have little bits and pieces here and there, right? So this one piece that we're talking about is when we look at the brain of a migraine sufferer, we see that different parts of the brain are lighting up, right? And they're, they're, they're active. You can't like say, you can't look at the brain and say, ah, this is the locus for migraine. This is the area of the brain that's responsible for migraine. That doesn't, that doesn't exist mm. in multiple areas of the brain. The whole brain is involved. Mm. That's why it's not just a headache. That's why you're experiencing so many of these symptoms that can really take you out. And that's why it's so disabling. Beyond the different changes in activity in the brain, there are also genetic factors. So there have been studies on patients with migraine, genetic studies that have found almost 40 different genetic regions within our genome that are associated with migraine we don't have them figured out they don't you know they don't tell a very comprehensive story we just know that there are different regions of our genome that are responsible for migraine and we see those those different regions present in patients who have migraine
0: that's it so that's the one that's common to it's Common to migraine sufferer. If you're a migraine sufferer, you're likely to have.
1: Absolutely. But there's another group of migraine sufferers, right? So you have those who genetically are predisposed to migraine. Just because you have the genes for migraine doesn't mean that you're going to have a life with migraine. There are families, right, where you have mother and sister and and brother who, you know, they have migraine. And then you got another little sister who lives her merry little life and has never had a migraine,
0: right? And do you also have migraine sufferers who have none of the genetic dispositions?
1: Absolutely, yes, right? And so that's where these yeah. things come in. And the things that we know that can predispose people to migraine without, you know, aside from the genetics are traumatic brain injury. Mm infections that involve the brain. So meningitis or encephalitis, those are kind of the the big ones um, that can predispose people to migraine. And so when a patient comes in with migraine, those are kind of the questions that I'm asking them. I'm really trying to understand Mm -hmm. what is their family history? What is their life history? How many times have you hit your head? Have you ever had a concussion? Have you ever had meningitis or a brain infection? Because that helps me to understand, you know, what we're working with here. Now, mind you, you know, we're at a point where we understand these players and the people with migraine that are in these different groups, the people who are the genetic migraine sufferers, the ones who are the ones who had a head injury that now have migraine. There are subtle differences in what they experience as their migrate, But the big general categories of, I have these symptoms that make me feel like I'm going through a fog, I have light sensitivity, I have sound sensitivity, sounds are very bothersome to me, and I have a headache that lasts several hours. Those are kind of the basic tenets that are common among all of these groups. But there are some subtle differences, and that's where the research is going now. Really parsing apart who these different, my, what are these different types of migraine sufferers?
0: So, like a, a brain injury suffer sufferer might have different symptoms from, say, somebody who's had a, a brain infection or something else.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does and this try to understand what those are?
0: Yeah. It, it, it's, it keeps, this keeps coming up my head. Is this, does this have anything to do with inflammation? Like so many other things in our, our health these days.
1: Yeah. Um, inflammation does play a role. Um, we know that because when we, when we treat patients with anti-inflammatory medications, right? Like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, like, Advil, ibuprofen, and then the prescription medications that kind of have that same effect. We know that they treat migraine well. They get rid of the headache. We also know in research studies that when we give inflammatory markers, if we infuse these inflammatory markers into someone with migraine, it can trigger migraine.
0: Interesting, interesting.
1: So we know that that's a component, we don't understand it completely yet. There are multiple different components of that migraine cascade and inflammation is just one part of it. What We know it well in kind of animal models of migraine, there's something called neurogenic inflammation that's a a part of it, but it's not clear that that exact type of inflammation is the same type of inflammation that's happening in the human brain when it comes to migraine.
0: Okay, okay. Now you said Advil and some of the other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories work, but I, I know a lot of people who've tried a lot of things and they don't have any luck. What, what how often do, the, do things like Advil and Tylenol and things like that work? And I know Tylenol is different, but yeah, um, how, what's the treatment? What can you, what do you, you know, what's reliable, what works reliably for these patients?
1: You know, um, every patient is different. It's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, sand at the beach. Every single grain is different. <laughs> and I think it's, it's really awesome, but it, it's, what's good about it is that we have multiple different treatments, right? So some patients, mind you, by the time I see a headache patient. Tylenol and Advil don't work for anybody.
0: They've tried, they've tried the right. stuff off the shelf. They've
1: tried all of the regular right. stuff, they've sure. tried the sure. over counter stuff, and they're in a place <laughs> where they need more help. Um, and so, you know, in that, in this case, we have medications we borrowed, you know, up until about two, two and a half years ago, we have used medications to treat migraine with treatments that are from other fields. So we've used medicines from, you know, patients from cardiology, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers that are used to regulate the heart rhythm and the blood pressure. Those work well for migraine. We've used medications from um, the epilepsy field, people with seizures, medications that are used to kind of calm the brain activity that's involved in creating seizures can help to reduce migraine. Um, What others? Ah, antidepressants. So from the field of psychiatry, the antidepressants work so well to treat migraine, even in patients who aren't depressed or anxious. Um,
0: That is really incredible.
1: Yeah. But now, you know, I said up until two and a half years ago, we had all of those things that we use and they work really well if you use them in the right way for the right patient, right? One patient I can use, you know, an antidepressant for, and it works great. The next patient I can use that same antidepressant and it doesn't work at all. Right? So we know things that work really well. It's just finding the things that work well for that particular patient. That's where the art comes in. Right? So now over the past two and a half years, because of what we've learned about migraine pathophysiology, the field has developed therapies that target specifically the players that are involved in creating migraine. And so the one player, there's there's two kind of players that, that, that have been singled out and that, you know, medications are either on the market now, being used in the clinic now, or will be out on the market very, very soon. And so one of them is the category of medications that targets this protein called calcitonin gene-related peptide. Oh, boy. It's called, the the acronym for it is CGRP. Okay. And it's one of many different peptides that are involved in creating head pain with migraine. But it's the only one that we understand well enough to now have medications out that target it. And so there are three companies that have come up with medications that target the same peptide. And um, they are antibodies that bind to the CGRP molecule or to the CGRP receptor. And when they bind to the molecule or the receptor, they prevent that interaction between the molecule and the receptor that causes a pain response right? And so these monoclonal antibodies will last in the body for 30 days. And so these are therapies that take you from, you know, these are patients who are, have been taking oral medications. They take a medication every day because if they don't take this medication, mm-hmm. they get a migraine. They go from taking medications every day and still having migraine to doing an injection with this medication once a month and their migraines are significantly reduced. There are some patients that they swear by it. Like if they if they miss their 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 dose, they can see the migraines starting to ramp up again, right? And so these have been revolutionary in changing, you know, how we're able to, um, you know, reduce disability in patients with migraine. Patients are able to go back to work. They're able to. You know, moms are able to go to the to the you know football games and the basketball games and you know be more active in their the lives of their families and be more um, present for themselves.
0: In this case, what is so is it CGRP you said? Yes. In this case, what does CGRP do in in the healthy brain?
1: Yeah. So it has multiple different um mechanisms of action in the brain. Um, one of them is that it, it, it affects the vasculature. So when your blood vessels, um, constrict CGRP is involved in bringing that constricted blood vessel back to its baseline level of, of tone is what we call it, but mm. brings it right back to not being constricted anymore. Okay. Okay. Um, the other thing that CGRP is involved in is gut motility, meaning that, you know, your your, your GI tract, it's, a, it's an organ in the body that's constantly moving. It's got to move in order to process the food and produce bowel movements, right? When you have problems with that movement, when it moves in reverse, you have vomiting, right? When it stops moving, you have constipation. And... CGRP is involved in that gut motility. So um, other things that we know that CGRP is involved in is uh, wound healing. So we know that, um, you know, when you cut yourself, you have some inflammation. You also, and that inflammation actually helps to heal that wound and form the scar. We know that CGRP is involved in that wound healing process as well. But in the case of,
0: but with migraine, it's, but okay, so all those things, I'm hearing all those things and I'm thinking, how could that, how could something like that have something to do with migraine?
1: I know. So (laughs) what we find is that it's it's also a part of um, the cascade of peptides. Remember I told you that it's involved in, you know, helping with the blood vessels constrict and open up. When we look at, um, you know, pain, I call them pain neurons. The pain neurons are closely related to the blood vessels. That's how we, uh, that's how the brain and the nervous system releases pain molecules that allow you to sense pain, right? It releases it into the bloodstream and then you, you sense pain. And CGRP is one of those pain molecules that's released into the bloodstream and allows you to feel pain. What we find in migraine is that in migraine sufferers in a migraine attack, guess what happens to that CGRP in the blood? It goes up.
0: It goes up, sure.
1: It goes up. And what we find is that if you were to give somebody, somebody who's not having a migraine right now, migraine sufferers not having a migraine, and you give them CGRP, guess what? They'll have a migraine.
0: Have a migraine, fascinating.
1: So this medication, when used in patients who have migraine, it can actually modulate that level of CGRP. Remember, we talked about that modulation before, right? You want you know the levels can fluctuate and cause very different um, you know effects in the body and the brain. But when you're able to kind of understand what happens in certain disease states, you can you can bring it back down to a homeostasis. Sure. You know, you you cure that symptom, you treat that symptom.
0: You know, it's fascinating. The body is such a reuser of tools. Yes. You know, like <laughs> there's serotonin. a lot of
1: redundancy.
0: Yeah, it's serotonin's yes. in your brain. It does one thing, and in your gut, it does another. And yes. you know, I'm sure you know all of you know many many of these things. But um, it's just fascinating yes. that it, can, it reuses this molecule over and over. And yes. um, absolutely. I can imagine some of the side effects you might have. Um, from yeah. doses of CGRP given that it's involved in gut motility and everything else. I don't know if yeah. this, but.
1: Yeah. And that's the surprising thing with these medications. So um, you would think, you know, with the different mechanisms that CGRP has in the body, giving an antibody that blocks the CGRP action, you know, what is it going to do to these different parts of the body? Well, yeah. we that, you know, and, and that's, that kind of leads to some of the side effects of the medications, right? For the most part, these injectable medications have little to no side effects whatsoever. The most common side effect is the um, injection site reaction. So you might get a little bit of redness and rash there, but for, for one of the medications, it, it has shown to have some effects on the gut and it can cause some significant constipation in some patients. Yeah. Now, any patients who have been tried on this medication and they don't have any problems with constipation at all, but there are some that, you know, you, you would be a little bit more concerned about. So knowing the side effects of, of the medications helps me to understand which patients would benefit from it. I and mean, you try to find ones that will benefit from it, but will not suffer as well, right? You want to, you want to give all the benefit of the medication without adding on to their suffering. So patients with you know GI issues like IBS and constipation, I wouldn't put them on that particular CGRP medication. The good thing is is that we have three of them so you know we have options to use.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, you've chosen to tackle a really tough issue here <laughs> in your practice. I mean this is migraine is fascinating. It is absolutely. Uh, And so varied across the patient population. Yes. But it sounds like there's hope. I mean, it sounds like you're hopeful.
1: I'm absolutely hopeful. I mean, you know, we've only talked about... Things are working. Things are working. Yes, things are working. And we've only talked about the tip of the iceberg when it comes to therapies for migraine and migraine-specific therapies, right? So in addition to the, you know, the injectables, we now have new, brand new CGRP um, targeting oral therapies. For migraine. And now they're coming out with other CGRP targeting therapies where you would get an infusion and you come into the office, you get an infusion of this medication and you don't come back to the office for three months for this infusion. So there's, there's a lot of different, you know, new things on the horizon. And, you know, we've talked a lot about therapeutics and science, but in addition to the science, there's also You know, the holistic aspect, you know, you don't need to rely wholly on medications to heal yourself and to make, you know, to to treat migraine.
0: Well, you were saying, yeah, it's like, like living a life in balance. It sounded like.
1: Yeah. And then there's, you know, Eastern medicine practices like acupuncture and Chinese herbs that have been helpful for so many of my patients. Relaxation techniques, stress reduction techniques, and actually kind of, you know, doing that, that full survey of your own body and understanding what those excesses and those deficiencies might be in terms of the way of your lifestyle, in terms of how you're nourishing your body and how you are, um, you know, utilizing your body, right, exercising the body. All of those things are needed in order to keep that balance and, and, and to, you know, improve your health when it comes to migraine.
0: You know, whenever I talk to a doctor from PNI exercises, it comes up in virtually every podcast as, you know, almost a miracle cure.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It is. It is one of the best treatments for every single neurological disease.
0: Isn't that amazing? yeah last thing we before, before we run out of time here uh tell me w- how you interact with uh, Pacific Neuroscience Institute and the doctors
1: there ah um so you know Pacific Neuroscience Institute is an awesome group of of doctors as you know um, we basically you know between Pacific Neuroscience Institute and my clinic um, we basically can provide comprehensive care for anyone with a you know neurological condition, whether it be a brain tumor, pituitary tumor, facial pain, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, you know um, muscular, neuromuscular diseases, neuropathies, and radiculopathies. Um, we 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 treat it all, um, and you know we there are we share a lot of patients. There are patients who need you know, a Parkinson's disease or a movement disorder specialist, but then they also have pretty severe headaches or there are people, what's also nice is that I also see adolescent patients. So I see patients age 10 and up. And so it's nice that, you know, some of the adult doctors, they might have a patient in neurology and maybe one of their, one of their, the children of of the patient needs neurological care. And so, you know, we're able to kind of provide that service and make sure that we collaborate on, on these cases and, um, you know, having all of these doctors in one place, we're able to come up with a treatment plan that, um, you know, has the specific expertise of, of many different providers, um, patients really yeah. appreciate that collaborative level of care and you get multiple eyes looking at the same problem. Um, you, you can only do better with
0: that. From different vantage points. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Different vantage points. Exactly.
0: Next time we talk, next time we have you on, we're going to talk about concussion.
1: Okay.
0: A lot of that too, but this has been a delightful conversation and I've learned a lot and it makes me want to go out, jump on the exercise bike, (laughs) get a good night's sleep and have a good meal.
1: That's right. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect prescription for your brain health.
0: We're avoiding a migraine and a lot of other things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, Dr. Dodd, I really appreciate you coming on. It's a delight.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Think Neuro podcast. Join us every month for a new episode and learn how some of the best minds in medicine are caring for the most complex structures in the human body. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to it and please share it with a friend and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us.